it was wonderful. Just one of the moments where there's no way they were getting out of it because it was a it was a narrow track, and it turned out to be a, one of the Russian majors and his driver uh, doing a naughty, a naughty recce in a in a restricted area. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so you don't miss out on any of the episodes. Keith Bailey joined the British Army at 16 in 1973. He was recruited into the Blues and Royals, part of the Household Cavalry, and served in West Germany as a gunner in chieftain tanks. However, he was keen to serve in the Royal Military Police, particularly 19 Support Platoon, known as the White Mice. Their role was to track Soxmiss, the Soviet military mission in West Germany. Soxmiss operated under a 1946 agreement where Soviet, British, US and French agreed to an exchange of military mission groups to patrol the opposing sides then zones of occupation. The agreement continued to 1990 and needless to say both sides bent the rules somewhat. Now Cold War history is rapidly disappearing however a simple monthly donation will help keep this podcast on the air and continue to preserve these incredible stories. You'll get a sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hi, I'm Andrew, and I'm very proud to support Cold War Conversations with a small donation each month, because Ian's put together such a brilliant range of interviews. If you do support the podcast, your wallet will be a tiny bit lighter, but your brain will be very, very thankful. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to see the options. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing us on social media. It really helps us get new guests on the show. I'm delighted to welcome Keith Bailey, MBE, to our Cold War Conversation. I was uh, in the army cadets for many years and I always had a thing and it got into my blood in the army cadets. I might as well join the regular army and, uh, and see the world as, as many people think. And, uh, well, and I did, I joined the army at 16 as a boy soldier. I went to the guards depot and it was an interesting time to see how the army was around in 1973, which is a long time ago now. And, and from there, it just it just grew, you know. And, and I, I spent a, the first five years with the household cavalry as a clanky tanky. I was with the Blues and Royals. They have two uh, two sides to them. They have the mounted squadron in London, and they have the armoured side, which was at that time was in Cumbermere Barracks, which is a mouthful in Windsor. And then they moved from there in 1975 to Germany. So I spent most of my army career in Germany. What vehicles were they using at that time? When I <laughs> when I when I joined in seventy three, we had Saladin Saracens and Ferret Scout cars, that all all all, all wheeled, and then as uh, as we slowly drifted into the uh, into the late seventies, 
mid and late 70s we've started to get the the, the, the scorpions the samaritans and the samsungs and all the tr- light armored track vehicles and the, and the saladins and saracens and ferret scout cars are slowly phased out but they did keep the ferret scout car for an awful lot longer after the saracens and saladins left because they were a great little recce vehicle and, and then we were moved over from uh, Windsor to uh, Germany, a place called Detmold, where we moved on to the MBT, the main battle tank, which was then a chieftain, and then later became the challenger. I didn't experience a challenger, but I did get all my tank trades on a chieftain. Oh, wow. Wow, yeah. Um, I've heard uh, quite challenges around the uh, power unit. Yeah, the, the, once once the, uh, the the engines are running, they're fine. But if you turn them off and then try and start them again, then the the, the engine seals used to burst, and then they used to spend more time off the road than on the road, which was a shame because they, overall they were a good tank. They just had a very poor quality engine, sadly. I once did get inside a chieftain actually at a tank museum in Norfolk, and I was surprised that the size. Of, I mean, the turret is quite roomy when it's compared to certainly a World War Two tank. Yeah, I would agree, but it's different when you're sat in the gunnery, the gunner's position because that is very compact because and you've got the commander directly behind you. So if you make an error with your judgment when you're firing, you you kind of had a size ten around your neck at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> it's the loader, it's the loader and the driver that have all the space. Trust me. So how did you end up in the Royal Military Police? Did you? sort of um see an application or an advert somewhere or how how did you end up with them there is a there's a kind of stigma to join in the military police from the household cavalry because uh, the blues and royals and the lifeguards are the most senior regiments in the Brit- in the british army except royal horse artillery when they're towing their guns which is not that often so um i met a chap in germany uh, a guy called John, Jock Johnston, really nice guy. I haven't spoken for an awful long time. And uh, I was on, I think I was on exercise. And I thought, you know, I, I quite, you know, I could, I think I could be a military policeman. I've spent five years with the cavalry. I know how a soldier thinks and I think I could do that job. And it kind of grew from there. And I discussed it with my wife and she said, yeah, why not? So I applied to join the uh, the RMP. And I was knocked back several times by the regiment because it was seen uh, unsuitable for a member of the household division to go down to a lower grade uh, corps, whatever it would be, uh, from from literally position number two to position twenty five within within the uh, <laughs> the army scales. So it, it was frowned upon. I was de- I I was declined twice on application, and on the third time. I'd already spent several tours in Northern Ireland, and I said to my uh, boss, which ha- just happened to be the 2IC of the regiment at the time, I said, look, you know, I really would like to go to the military police. He said, have you thought about this? I said, sir, I've been refused twice. I've, I've been declined twice. I know for a third third time you have to review my case. And so he did review the case, and he said to me, go to Northern Ireland, do your stint in Northern Ireland, come back, and if you still wish to go, I will push it forward for you. So I came back from Northern Ireland after a four-month tour, and I said, "Sir, I, I still would like to go." And he and he he moved. He, he honestly, he literally moved mountains, and within six months, I was I was gone. I was at the RMP training centre, and uh, as because in the cavalry, you a lance corporal wears two tapes and a crown, so it looks very strange. A lance corporal normally has one tape, so it was a very strange. I was I became a very strange commodity to the RMP training centre to be a corporal, a lance corporal with two tapes and a crown. 
and I confused many, many officers because there were many things like traditions like in any order of military dress, the Blues and Royals and the lifeguards can salute an officer. So I, as I was a Lance Corporal and all the other chaps were all direct entrants from civistry, I was literally the only voluntary transfer. They, they call you VT. And I called up this squad to attention and this officer walked past, a young officer, and he said, young man, we do not salute in an order of military dress. And I said, sir, it's a regimental custom. And the, then he said, what regiment are you? I said, the Blues and Royals. Mm. And he just ummed and said, never heard of you, but carry on. <laughs> 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 so, so I, 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 I confused oh. a lot of people for the period of, uh, from April 1980 until September when I passed out of the, of the RMP training center as a lowly Lance Corporal with one stripe. But, uh, but, but, but within five months, I was up to, I was promoted, promoted to Corporal, which is, which is great. So I, then I got two stripes without the crown. <laughs> And what attracted you to the RMP? What, why did you want to transfer to them? Well, when you've spent five years in a cavalry regiment, or any, in, in fact, any regiment, uh, which are either infantry or um, I would, I'm, I'm going to be specific. I'm going to say infantry and I'm going to say tanks. Because once you've done all your infantry skills, you are an infantier. And you can do other courses, but you are still an infantier. Once you are in a tank regiment, you you become a, uh, you become a tank driver, you, uh, a gunner, a loader, operator, and you get all those skills. And when you've got all those skills, which in a in a, in a tank regiment doesn't take long, you become what they call a, a crewman. Once you're a crewman, that is your that is where you will always be. You're either a crewman or you're specialised and you'll drive maybe an armoured vehicle. A smaller one, I mean, or something of that description. I was lucky. I mean, I was on a, I was on Chieftain, but I was also on light armored vehicles, which was the Ferret for many years, and Land Rovers as well. But that was that was me. I had all the, I had all the qualifications for to, uh, to be in the job I did. I was one of the best gunners in the squadron, which I thoroughly enjoyed being a gunner, even though I was stuck in a little dark hole most of the time. And uh, and and I realized, hang on a second, I've got all these tank qualifications for the army, what good are they in, to me in Civvy Street? Am I going to walk down the road and is there going to be a tank at the side of the road broken down and I can turn around and say, oh, I can drive a tank, I'll move it for you. But but it's never going to happen. So I so uh, having discussed it with my wife, I thought, you know, I've got I've got a brain. Let's use it as a as a as a tanky or an infantry. You use your hands a lot more than you use your brain in many aspects because you you do what you're told and you get on and you do the job. Whereas with the military police, yes, you use your hands, but you also use your brain a lot more and a lot more. Suddenly you're you're learning judges' rules or you're learning the police and the criminal evidence act. You're learning to deal with civilians who are dependents. You're learning to deal with soldiers and dealing with soldiers. As a soldier is one thing, but dealing with soldier as a military police, which have always got a bad, they always have a bad stigma being called monkeys and red caps and things. Uh, it, it became a, a, a point where I thought, well, I can do this. I can communicate with soldiers. I know how a soldier thinks. All I have to learn is, is the theory side. And it's not easy to learn the theory side, but I did, you know, and as I say, I was in the RMP training center from April 1980 until September 1980, where I had to learn all the judges rules and later became the police and the criminal evidence, criminal evidence act called PACE. So we, then we were then interviewing people for crimes. We were arresting people. I arrested officers. I arrested NCOs and non-commissioned officers. I arrested soldiers and it was all for good reason. 
There was never a bad reason behind it. It was, it was never for uh, they never because they were good people and they were arrested because they did something wrong, and that was that was my job to enforce the law as a military police officer. And it was it's enjoyable. And because uh, when you're with a when you're with a tank, the job's the same day in day out. You 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 get you get dermatitis, you get skin issues. With the RMP, you just have issues with with dealing with other people, so you learn how to communicate better. And suddenly, every day in my life, once I transferred, was different. I would go on patrol, I would drive different vehicles, I'd be crewed with different people, and you dealt with everyday incidents. It could be a traffic accident, it could be a suicide, it could be just a, a criminal damage, it could be a drunken soldier. Uh, my first case, my really my first case, which I'll tell you about because because it is so funny, was I was a, I was just literally trained uh, trained up as RMP. I came back to uh, the debt mode where I was where I was already originally posted from. And we went out on patrol and I was in the back of uh, the patrol car. And as we drove into town, there was a chap, this chap soldier came out of this nightclub. I think it was around about 1130 or 12 o'clock at night. He was completely out of his, out of his head. He was gone and he tried to get on this bike. Unfortunately, unbeknown to him, the bike was chained to the fence. So when he tried to pedal it, he went over the handlebars and smashed his face on the ground. No, he didn't do it once. He did it twice because he was so drunk. He just couldn't, had no feelings. So therefore, that was my first case for arresting a soldier for being drunk in a public place, um, basically for attempted theft of a, of a pedal cycle. And that, that was my first case. And it was, you know, and then he didn't, the next morning he, he woke up from the prison cell and felt his face all smashed in and didn't know what he'd done. So, it, but it was still, a, it was still a crime in, in the eyes of the law. It was, it was the way it is. Drunkenness. Uh, in a public place and stealing a th- oh potentially trying to steal a bike is still cr- is still a crime so it it goes from little minor things from that to to go into a to a suicide of, a, of an 18 year old or go into a traffic accident where there are injuries or there are no injuries every day was different and that's what i liked and with the tankies with the blues and royals it was the same yeah no i can understand that because the the image you have of the royal or some people's image of the royal military police is as you've described sort of arresting drunken squaddies every evening but effectively you know the royal military police was a police force for the entire army so you're dealing with the whole range of different crimes that could be committed so uh there's a lot of learning and a lot of rules that you've got to follow i'm presuming i mean you've got to learn the definitions of theft assault criminal damage uh, uh, all all these uh, all these you have to learn because the definitions have to be followed because in the definitions you have to ask the questions that pertain into that definition a person is guilty of theft if they dishonestly appropriate property belonging to another so you have to when you put in your questions you say well did you know you, were, you that when you took that uh, cup you were stealing well yeah, I suppose so. Another kind of question, kind of answers you get. So therefore, you've covered that one already. So he dishonestly appropriated property. Did you know that property belonged to somebody else? Uh, yeah, well, it was just laying around. So I took it. You've approved another point. So you have to prove all these points in your interview. And in the early days, the interviews were done. Everything was done in writing. Later, they brought in uh, recording devices. So uh, it's, it's got it's got easier, but it, but the paperwork hasn't got any easier. But yes, we were we were in in Germany. We were real policemen, policemen and police women. We were we did a role, a proper role as proper police officers, and we and we did it to the best of our ability. And we we'd say we covered everything. Uh, and when it came to serious crime, we had our specialist unit, the Royal Military Police Special Investigation Branch, which was the equivalent to the CID. And they would take over uh, serious incidents like rape or murder and stuff like that. And we had, we had those cases. They happened in Germany. 
luckily not too often, but they did happen and they were dealt with accordingly. Um, and in certain circumstances in Germany, the British could take control or take uh, responsibility of a, of a serviceman, depending on the crime they committed. As time changed, and as we started to draw out in the 90s, the, the rules got a little bit tighter, and the Germans started to take on the, the control of police in the British forces in Germany. So it kind of it changed towards the end. But but after the after the the, the war in 1945, right up to the 90s, the, the military police had a lot. They had a lot of power. They had a lot of control, and they, they didn't abuse it. There were the odd. There's always going to be the odd individual. There's always one or two bad apples in every barrel. And no matter what regiment you go to, you'll find that. And overall, the people I work with are fantastic. Uh, you know, we had our banter, we had our mess life, we had a, we just had great social activities and enjoyed the life. I mean, I spent 16 years in Germany. It's a big chunk of my life. My wife is German. I speak German. I have dual nationality now. Yeah, and the RMP had quite a special role in West Berlin as well, didn't they? They certainly did. They had control of the corridor, uh, and they 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 policed the Berlin Wall and all sorts. I mean, I wasn't lucky enough to to serve in Berlin, but I had friends that that did, and I often went to Helmstedt on the border there to uh, to just that's as far as I ever went really on on official in uniform. But my wife has actually visited visited Berlin during the Cold War more than I did. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't it wasn't one of my postings but i did get there uh, just just after the the berlin wall came down i was i went there it was really really very interesting to see what everyone else had experienced uh, and berlin's an incredible place if you haven't been you should go oh it's one of my favorite cities i mean i've been there probably about 10 times and i, I managed to get there before the wall fell um so i've seen the the contrasts as well how did you first hear about 19 support platoon? I used to be, when I was in Detmold with the RMP, I, I, I knew of them because they came to our police station quite often, or you could say RMP duty room. It's now a police station. And uh, we used to, I, and I actually been, I've actually been out in their vehicles on patrol with these, they used to have these big white Ford consoles. I said, what do you do? And they said, oh, we police the Russians. I said, doing what? Because I was completely naive, you know, we'd been briefed about Stocksmiths, but nobody ever saw one really. And if they did, it was on very, very rare occasion. And uh, of course, they explained to me, and they were very proud of the fact that they were driving these big white cars, and they'd been across to UK and gone across to uh, to, to the um, to Preston, done their police adv- civilian police advanced driving course, which they all all did. They're all qualified, highly highly qualified drivers, all paid for by the MOD uh, for the good and benefit of the British forces in Germany. And uh, and I thought, you know, I, I, you know, I'd be interesting. But then I got posted to uh, Northern Ireland for two years. And, of course, you can't do anything in Northern Ireland. And from Northern Ireland, I anticipated going back to Germany. And I didn't. I actually went to Cyprus. So we spent four years away from Germany and then went back. And it, this was pretty, pretty bizarre, really, because when I got posted back to Germany, I got posted to uh, Bielefeld. And Bielefeld was a police post. And as when I got there, I very quickly realised I was actually at the home of nineteen support platoon because they were they had half the building at the other end, and we had the other half for the police station. So I got to know them ins and outs. I got to know the uh, the warrant officer and the, and the staff sergeants and other people. And I and I said to Leo, "How do I get in with you guys? You have to join the queue and get at the back because you're because you're lowest of the low." So I put my name forward. And I was think I was at the police station for a year, and they said I got a knock off the uh, the warrant officer, a nice chap called Bernie Virgin, uh, really nice guy. He said uh, we're recruiting. 
you know, we've had a lot of people not able to to uh, come and join us. Would you be interested? I said, absolutely. So uh, the first thing I had to do was do the what they called the British Army of the Rhine, the BAOR, White white Mice Course, White Mice Driving Course. And I did a course with a guy called Mal Bins. He was a good friend of mine. He lives in Hull. And he was he, he taught, took, took us out, a few of us. Uh, there was one, there were two RMP. Uh, he was RMP and one RAF chap. Uh, do, done the course and we did did the course it was over four th- four weeks uh, driving all over germany in, in the white mice unmarked white mice vehicles and it was great and i got through that course and then i joined the platoon and they said before you can go on any operational duties you need to go across to preston and do their advanced course now and oh my gosh so then they sent me across to preston for a, for a further four weeks to do their instructor's course, as did everybody else, including the warrant officer. Everybody did that course and then came back. And then I was able, I was issued with a vehicle. And that was your vehicle that you would use to go out and do, uh, as, as you know, as you know, as the white mice, socksmith duties, white mice, because we were white vehicles. Uh, and that's the way it was. We never had any livery down the side, just military police front and rear and a blue light on the roof initially. 87, 88 in 89 we had 2.8 liter ford granadas and they had extended fuel tanks 160 liters of fuel and a single blue light on the roof and and the usual same german sirens as as the germans had which uh, which which helped a lot because the germans react to that, those kind of sirens very very quickly the, those driving courses you were on what were they teaching you how to conduct a vehicle stop the, the same exact same courses the, the police undertake to become a police advanced drivers and they have to learn the road craft inwardly digest the road craft and regurgitate it on on a drive so you would go out there'll be three there'll be three of you in the vehicle with an instructor a, um, a civilian police instructor and he would take you out uh, in the vehicle one would obviously drive and you would have to drive and give a give a commentary, and the the instructor would teach you, you know, the observation, anticipation, planning, and restraint, and all these kind of things using the, the elements of the road craft, where you mirror, signal, maneuver, you know, and this, all the all the kind of stuff that you have to do before you commit yourself to any anything like a prior to an overtake. You know, it's mirror. Is it clear? Signal. Is it? Can I signal safely? Can I check the mirror again? Is it safe to go? And you have to do all this, and it has to be fluid. And it has to be practiced. And with that, you become more proficient. And that was the whole course. So you would sit in a vehicle behind the wheel of a vehicle for about an hour, hour and a half, depending on the instructor's feelings towards you. And you would talk almost on, an, on almost nonstop in, in many cases to learn the skills they need to partake to you on the, in the road craft. And you learn everything about corners, uh, bet the types of bends, um, you know, left, right, gradual cue. There's all sorts of stuff that you have to learn about the road and the highway code as well. And you have to go and sit on, on lectures and you, people would give you lectures on, uh, stopping distances, braking distances, uh, everything to do with, with being able to control your vehicle with car sympathy, driving with comfort, not being aggressive with the controls. Even as far as steering the vehicle, you would have your hands in a position on the wheel that you could steer with maximum control of the vehicle, uh, how to have what we call car sympathy so that we don't waste fuel. We uh, Everyone's comfortable when you drive and, and you drive around bends at ridiculous speeds and the instructor's going, come on, he's going, come on. And you're going, and, you're, and you see the sweat start to develop on your forehead and you think yeah this is scary but it's they're amazing courses and four weeks is a long time but you come away a lot wiser we mentioned socksmiths mm. earlier can you just tell us why there were soviet troops driving around west germany 
after the Second World War, uh, about it's it obviously the Second World War finished in 1945. In 1946, there was a decision made by the the the, mo- the different uh, countries, which was France, America, Russia, and Britain, that they would divide Germany, and that each would have a section and con- and control it. In those sectors, you would have a co- from the Robertson and Malin Agreement, which is the agreement which which tells them that their job is to basically gain intelligence lawfully and not go into restricted areas, but they did. Uh, and basically that, that was their job to monitor the British, American and French and Russian forces appropriately. So we had Bricksmiths in the in the East and Americans and French had the same. Um, they had Soviet military mission, i.e. Socksmiths in, in the West and they would be in the in the British, the French, and the American sectors, and they would be policed by the Americans and American sector, the Brits and the British sector, and and, and so forth. That's that's the way it went, and they would have anything from uh, five to eight or, or eight vehicles, from whether it be four by four or just general Opel Asconas or uh, Opel Commodore, they have a mixture of vehicles, some with and with trailers and, and, and mobile uh, transit vans and stuff like that. And their job was to go out and patrol and, and gain intelligence on what was going on with the British forces and the same for our people, which were doing the same in the East. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War, uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. And our job as white mice, were we would be out in, in areas because we had temporary restricted areas, which were imposed during exercise periods, which means they were not supposed to go into those areas. And we would have permanently restricted areas. Now, permanently restricted areas were where any military installation was, whether it was was British, Dutch. uh, If they were in the British zone, those areas were completely restricted to the Russians. But clearly they did go into those areas and clearly they did disappear into woods at night. And they quite often disappeared from our radar. Uh, But when they were when they were in specific areas and they were caught or not so much caught, but they were seen, our job was to go out and move them from the area. And if they were caught in a restricted area, nine, uh, nine times out of ten, there would be a vehicle front and a vehicle behind them from the from the Allies, and a, a blanket would, would be put over the top of the vehicle so the Russians couldn't see what was going on around them, because obviously their job was to gain intelligence from what was going on around these military installations. And then they would call us, and we would go out, we, and they would only ever surrender their documents to the British military police in the British sector. So if they were stopped by the German police, they would not talk to the German police. They would not engage with the German police in any form whatsoever. They would just sit there with their arms crossed and and just, and just put a, a little, um, I think it was a label they had, called the British military police. And then they would call us out. And we would we had complete jurisdiction over the Soviets during the Cold War. 
And then if they were in a restricted area and they'd been detained uh, by either by us or by other other agencies, then we would uh, take uh, we would then go across, obtain their identities, which they would surrender to us. Then we'd go back to our patrol car. And we had uh, communications, the radios weren't brilliant, but we had a thing called TechAid, which was like a phone, a, a, an old mobile phone, which is a huge thing, but it fitted into the vehicle. And we would call back to our base, which was Zero Delta and Bielefeld, or we would call directly to the, the Soxmiss liaison officer, and he was in Hereford, and he would come out with his driver, uh, and then he'd speak to the to the Russians, because uh, he, obviously he spoke fluent Russian, and... It would basically they would get a slap on the wrist and told they shouldn't be in the area, and then they would be escorted out of the area, and the report would be submitted as to what happened and their attitude and so forth. But because it was such a political hot potato, whatever we did to the Russians in the West, it was reciprocated on our British colleagues in the East fivefold. So if we were aggressive towards them, then there's guaranteed something worse than nasty would occur to our to one of our vehicles over there. They would be rammed by another tracked vehicle, or they could be shot at, or they could be in, uh, detained for no reason whatsoever. So we, uh, it was all very much a, polit- a political hot potato when you were dealing with the Russians. So you were very, very polite, and they would very rarely speak uh, uh, English to us. They would always speak German uh, or Russian, unfortunately, because I could speak German, they would talk to me and I would communicate with them, but obviously with moderate uh, conversation because we we couldn't be seen to be fraternizing as uh, some some people would point out, and then we they would be they would be taken away and they'd go away on their merrily journey with a slapped wrist, and they'd come back and do it again in a few weeks. But that's that's the way it was, you know. And then they would uh, take. I'm sure we know they took pictures. We know they were uh, they would ha- they had a dead a dead letterbox drops where they would leave certain things in certain places, and then someone in another vehicle, uh, whether it be Polish plates or whatever, would be in Germany, pick up these films and then take them on to the east, where they would sub- slowly filter back into the system. But I know for a fact that our intelligence corps, that were 26 liaison, which were another bunch of lads that were out with unmarked vehicles, were quite hot and used to follow up on a lot of these things. And, and of course, the Soviets didn't know at the time that they were being monitored not just by us. We were the overt uh, prevention. They were also covert. And they were out there just as much as we were. And they looked just as much as a normal civilian than anybody else. So... We, you know, we did a job, but the, I'm sure the Liaison Intelligence Corps did a great job uh, in deter, uh, deterring them from getting a lot of material back to the east. east. I'm fairly, I'm fairly sure of that. But we, we did what we were told. We chased them, we dealt with them, uh, and it was sometimes it was busy, and sometimes you could sit around for days and nothing would happen. They wouldn't even come out of the compound. So it was all all different days. Where where was their compound? Was it in Hereford, the Soxmiss compound? I believe they originally started in a in a place called where was it Bad Zuffel or something like that, and then they moved to Bunda. And in Bunda, they had in the enclosed compound, and inside that enclosed compound, they had their vehicles, they had their offices, and their, I mean, they had married. There were married couples in, in there. They brought their wives and their children across. They had education. They had everything. You know, they they even had access to the nappy. Uh, which was down there, which was the forces shopping center, uh, and they would they would go merrily to those places to buy stuff, and were, it was all organised by the British liaison officer, and he would uh, you know liaise with them on a regular basis, and, and they just would really they were just there, and when they would go, they would go out in uniforms. So they were always in uniform, never never seen them in, in in civilians, and the whole time I was there, I don't think they did have civilian clothing, but they only 
only time I saw that was when the the, the last few days before they the, they left the, the the former West Germany to go back to the east. Did they have even schools in that compound then for their kids, or were the kids taught locally? I'm I'm not hundred percent certain. I, I think they used to have um, classes within their compound. The teachers would come in, as far as, I, as far as I'm aware, and they would be taught like almost homeschooling that kind of thing because they all they they all had not all but many of them had children uh, but it must have been quite boring for them inside that compound there can't have been much they, they could have done because it wasn't a very big place at all um, and the standards of the houses were okay are probably better than what they got in russia at that time so they were they were treated well they never wanted for anything and they always got their their, their uh, vodka <laughs> and how did they pay for stuff in the NAFI? Did they get some sort of allowance from the Soviets in hard currency in Deutschmarks? Or I, I'm guess I'm fairly sure it was organised by the British liaison officer again, and they would they would have a certain amount of currency they would they would they would use in in the NAFI to buy to buy their stuff, and it was all sorted anyway. And it was, they were always pretty much uh, escorted by somebody, so it wouldn't it wouldn't have been an issue. But they would be in uniform. I know that for a fact. So there, there was always you know allowances made. When they left the compound at Bunda, were they was there always a white mice vehicle waiting outside to follow whatever vehicles left there, or were you relying on sightings from British troops? Um, when you come into the, uh, the the old compound, there there was uh, a camera and a, and a little like a little look like it's like a little guard hut, but in that guard hut it wasn't a person, but it was a camera. So every time a vehicle would come out of that their compound the camera would act uh, was obviously activate and send a message to the control room who would then inform us that uh, car 54 or car 42 or or car 41 has left the compound and we never sat actually right outside the um the, the compound itself we sat about about, about two k's away outside a place called the woodyard it was an actual woodyard a huge woodyard and we would sit there. Sometimes there'd be one vehicle. Sometimes there would be two. Sometimes there'd be four or five. Uh, the guy that owned the woodyard must have loved us because he never got broken into. Could be because we were there almost twenty four seven, all the way, all weeks and days and nights and all sorts. And we would sit there and we'd we'd be you know you'd have, you'd have your coffee or you'd be eating or you'd be just one of you'd be wide awake and the other one would be kind of be, be kind of napping with the seats semi reclined, and you'd get on the radio. Uh, Hello, all white mice call signs. This is Zero Delta. Car 41 has just left the compound. Now, it, they are instructed to come our way. They have to come past us. That's their, their instruction. But occasionally, instead of coming out the compound and going left, they would turn right and go out the back way. And sometimes that would happen. They would just disappear off the radar and then they would get chastised for doing it. But they, but they served their purpose. Nobody knows why they did it. Well, it's clearly they're up to, they're up to no good, but they did it. But most of the time, 99% of the time, they would come past us and we would be sitting there. And the moment that the vehicle drives past us, we would start our engines or we'd have the engines running and we'd just follow on behind. And that would be, uh, you know, we'd follow them through uh, and, that, and that would be it. We'd follow them until we were either told to drop or they came back in again. And what they used to do, they would drive past with one vehicle and they would see how many of ours are there. And we, um, we don't know. I didn't ever see it, but I'm fairly sure they had some kind of communications because if they if there were four of our vehicles there, they would send out five. 
They know it knowing full well that for every vehicle they sent out, we would follow. And then the four that we would follow, they'd go out, do a circuit and come back in again to the compound. But the fifth one, which would, would be, which would be undetected as far as they were concerned, but they didn't realize obviously that the uh, intelligence corps were out there would go out and think that they've got a free hand and disappear and do their thing in, into, the, into Germany. And they did that every so often, especially during exercise periods where they wanted to gain more intelligence. They would send more vehicles out than we had at the, at the woodyard. And they would uh, then, and then they would just go do go freely. But then we were reliant on the local, the, the German locals and the British forces members, and any other forces that were in German, in West Germany where we were, to inform us of any sightings. And there was a card. They all they all had these um, these cards, which you have, it's, it's got you got a number on it. And it's on the back. It it would, it would say if you see a Soxford vehicle, contact this contact this number and inform us. And people used to call in. And we, you know, and we'd be, we'd be out on, on the ground we, and we would, they would go back in and, and we would, we'd be sent somewhere else, uh, depending on how many cars were out there. And then they would, we would hear on the radio, uh, the car is sighted at such and such a place. And we could be in Dortmund and they could say, we've got car 52. It's just been sighted at Hanover. So we would have to hightail it. From Dortmund to Hanover, uh, and we used to—I mean, we used to—fly at ridiculous speeds. I mean, the, the the Granadas used to do, I think, flat out around about 110, 120 miles an hour, and then you would be flat out all the way through, and it, just to get to where they were, uh, so that you could pick them up if they were in the area, and then get, and get them out out, and then and we do that all, nearly all the time. But it was a, it was cat and mouse. We used to hunt them, and they used to hunt us, and it was not so much hunting us, but they used to try to lose us, I should say. But uh, the uh, I'm sure they had the the intelligence call not far from where we were anyway, and, and we're fairly sure that on occasion we would we would be called into an area where they a car had been sighted because the int corps had dropped them off and they wanted us to carry on because they were now in a in a in sort of friendlier zone and they just wanted to know let them know that we knew that they were there kind of thing and that, it was a, it was a cat and mouse it was a game and there were all three of us involved the Soviets the, the intelligence corps and the white mice and that's that's what we did. It was it was it was fun. And how many vehicles did they have in that compound? How many? What was their sort of like maximum disposition they could send out? They could put out as many as five vehicles, really uh, properly manned. I mean, you know, they had the capacity to do that, but they but they never really put any more out in one go than five. That was the, the most I'd, I'd known. And I say, uh, and if if once they'd got rid of the, the white mice at the at the woodyard then most of them would come back in again because they were just a distraction and that's the, that's the way it would work but not too often but it did it did happen uh, so they had a free hand to go and disappear and usually you had 43 i think it's 43 and and uh, there were two isuzu troopers and they were obviously they had four by four capabilities, so they're the ones that may, used to disappear into the uh, into the forests areas. Um, because we didn't have four by four capability, because because we couldn't follow them into the wooded area, even though they might have been, we might have seen them go into that area. Um, I did try it. I did try it once, and I broke down. It, it happens. But uh, you know, we were in Granada's with 160 liter tanks. You, you're very low to the ground, so you, you're just not built to go across country. Whereas they were in these little Isuzu trooper. One was a hard top, and one was a soft top, and they were both green. So they blended into the into the forest really, really well. And all they did with their number plates was because they were yellow and red, they would cover them with mud so they couldn't be picked up at night. And they would stay out overnight sometimes. Did they have any of the the lighting like the uh, Bricksmith cars did with the uh, the James Bond switches where they could change the lighting so it looked like a motorbike or... 
more than likely anything like that yeah, more than likely but we, i mean we never it was very difficult and really never never really uh had a, a lot of contact with them at night apart from when if they were if they were seen coming back in off the motorway off the autobahn uh, and usually you could see they haven't cleaned their plates properly so you knew they'd been across country and you knew they'd been hiding up somewhere and sometimes they disappear for a couple of days a couple of nights and they stay out uh, do do their whatever they were doing gaining intelligence and then they just reappear on the radar again but once they disappeared until we we got a, a positive sight and we couldn't do couldn't do much about it you know and i'm sure the bricksmiths did a brilliant job i mean they were they did a lot took had a lot more took a lot more risk on than uh, than the we did you know and the, and the soviets got away with a lot uh, to a point but they were monitored quite often well not quite often a lot to be honest you know, we quite often not used to see um, unmarked. Um, it, our in- intelligence groups were out a couple of times, and one of the lads said, "Oh, I know that guy who just passed us in that car. He was in the same course as me in, in Preston." And they, they, because they, they, they wouldn't admit to that fact, they just keep on driving. So it's quite funny. We had those little close encounters, and when you come back off a patrol, you put out put a report together, and you, the intelligence corps would say, well, "We need to talk to you about this report." And then you, the guy would, the guys would come in, and you go, "Oh, I recognise you from that driving course." No, it wasn't me. <laughs> so uh, wow. yeah, interesting wow. and i mean you mentioned that they you know sort of socksmiths got up to things obviously they're, they're trying to gain military intelligence but did you and this is probably a question for somebody who worked in the intelligence corps but were they liaising with agents in place in west germany and dropping off information for or you know dead drops for them and and other sort of nefarious work like that. We we knew they were up they were up to stuff, and we knew that when they sent multiple vehicles out to to distract us and, and the uh, decoys, they, the other vehicle was going off to drop something off that was going to get picked up, and that 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 happened quite often. But whether the uh, intelligence corps picked them up, it's possible, but not, but not all the time. So I mean, I'm sure a lot of their stuff probably did get through i mean i mean when you look at the other side on our bricksmith the amount of stuff they got from uh, from the east was it's phenomenal it's, it's just incredible the, the amount of stuff they got um so i'm sure the uh this the socksmith didn't get quite as much as as the as the bricksmith got but they did they got they got the, what they wanted and i'm sure to a point they were allowed to get a certain amount a certain amount of information so so that they could the system could see that you know we're not mounting we're not building troops we're just maintaining troops and maintaining equipment and that's what we really did didn't it you know we didn't really build build up troops as really in fact if anything you know as, as we know things were getting less important so things were being cut down and the, you know, troops were being, being reduced i interviewed somebody who worked for u.s um counterintelligence and he was tracking socksmiths in the american zone yeah and they believed that they were setting up weapons caches for Spetsnaz troops, which is probably not unlikely, or lia- uh, you know, I don't know how much because I know that the the Stasi had contact with the uh, Bader Meinhof terrorist group. Yeah, um, but I think the Soviets probably steered quite clear of them. But it's quite interesting talking about you know potential weapons caches. I don't know whether you heard any of those stories. Vaguely uh, remember that kind of talk, but there's nothing that we. Ever came ever came across? I mean, I mean the the Soviets in our sector weren't even armed. They, they you know they might have had a, they might have had a penknife, but <laughs> but they never had any weapons. It was only us that became armed towards the end of the Cold War. So uh, not that not I know of. 
I was going to ask you whether you were armed. So you were armed towards the end of the Cold War because of the IRA threat. Yeah, to, towards the latter part of the 80s, right about eight, 80, end of 88, 80, yeah, early, about 89, the, the threat with the IRA escalated around BFG or BAOR because of the incidents with the soldiers getting shot in Belgium and all these places, uh, whether they were RAF, it doesn't mean they didn't discriminate who they were. And the army guy in, in Zeebrugge, the army decided that we would be armed. So they, uh, we both, the driver, and my, and my, the driver and whoever the passenger was, would be uh, armed with a nine millimeter pistol with ammunition, and it was live ammunition. It wasn't dummies. It was it was live stuff. And we were taken to the Russians and said and told and shown them the weapons and said, look, we will be armed from now on. It's for your protection and our protection. Uh, and, and just to let you know, these are the weapons we're going to be carrying. Uh, and they were they were more than happy about it. More than happy. Probably felt a little bit at ease, actually. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned the Soviets used to cover up their number plates. So they had special number plates that set them apart from other vehicles on the road. Yeah, they stuck out like a sore thumb. These big red hammer and sickle number plates on the on the right corner and, and then the rest of the plate was yellow with and it said it and it said on its Soviet Soviet military mission BAOR on the plate and that was obvious that stood out like a sore thumb. But when they used to go into the woods they would just get the plates, wet them because they're aluminium and just smear mud all over them. Uh, you know, we we saw we we saw one when we eventually picked one up it had gone missing these four by four and his plate was still a little bit dirty they hadn't cleaned it off properly so we we knew what that what they'd covered it in mud because otherwise it's although it's not reflective it is a very the red and yellow is very bright and it would stand out in any forest for all we know they could put, could have found a little bit of an old canvas or a little bit of a cam net that they found from the ex-troops on, on exercise and just covered it for the duration of their time uh, on the, in the in the forest areas but they they were very they were aware they always their clothing was always dark like green um, so they would they would blend in very easily and their uniform the badges weren't really shiny as such and they they probably would remove them anyway and so they would blend in very very easily to to their their surroundings yeah, because I think you've got one of the uh, number plates there, haven't you? Yeah, this is off this is actually off the vehicle I used to follow, number fifty two, which was an Opel Ascona. All this stuff was supposed to be collected and destroyed. Unfortunately, we got there before it got destroyed. <laughs> so we all took we all took little bits of mem- of, uh, of memorabilia. Otherwise, it would have been lost, which was a, which would have been a shame. Yeah, it would have been a, a real shame. And uh, that's an incredible souvenir you've got there. I mean, it's like the um, Bricksmith guys have got those um, PRA signs from East Germany yeah. and things like that. Are there any of the um, NATO PRA signs still existing, or they they will be, but they'll be in people's personal possessions now. I'm suggesting, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, Any, anything to do with the Cold War is 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 going to be sought after in the future because I know for a fact, having spoken to our military police museum, they have said they they have very little Cold War memorabilia because people that are still alive are still holding on to it. I always worry about, you know, families not realising the historical value of some stuff. It just ended up in a in a skip. Socksmiths would only recognise the Royal Military Police. So un- under what circumstances would the West German police stop a Socksmiths car? Would it be because of a road traffic accident or something like that? Yeah, they, they, they did have a, quite a few accidents 
uh, even when I was there, they had, a, had accidents. And, w- and when they were involved with another civilian vehicle, they would just sit in their vehicle, regardless of its condition, and wait for us to get there. They would never surrender anything. Nothing. And the moment the police the police realized it was a, a Russian vehicle, you could see by the number plates, they would then have to call us out and we would then get out there as quick as we could. You know, it was like, it was like watching firemen slipping down a pole. You know, we'd be out that quick because that's how, that was our job to get to them because we, we were their police force. We were there to liaise with them. Uh, the, the intelligence corps were not there to do that. You know, if anything happened, whether it was a road collision or something happened with them and they've involved another German civilian in any shape or form, we were there to, to not necessarily take their corner, but to be there to represent them. So they wouldn't even leave the vehicle, even if somebody had been injured in that nope. accident? No, nope. they would stay with the vehicle. Uh, and, and if they could, they'd secure themselves inside that vehicle until we got there. And then we would then call an ambulance or deal with it. They very rarely would let the uh, German authorities get anywhere near them. They were very protective about what was in, what was in their vehicles, which is understandable. And what what if um, one of these Soviet vehicles crossed into, you know, what would have been the American sector? Did you just turn around at that point because it was in somebody else's jurisdiction? Or no, uh, the if you want to cross into another sector, you had to get permission. It was, you needed writ- written documentation, and you would be met by if so. If we were sending, uh, oh, sorry, if we had. The, uh, our SOC was going into the American sector, we would have to meet the American forces at a certain point in Bavaria, right on the edge of Ger- on the on, on the main part of Germany. So somewhere on the edge, there'll be a motorway we would stop or the autobahn, and we would liaise with the Americans. We would exchange um, niceties, exchange uh, details of the of the Russian uh, officers going into their sector, and they would have to have papers from the British liaison mission to say that they were on official duty to go down there. And then the Americans would then escort them to wherever they were going to the Russian compound in their American sector and vice versa. When uh, Quite often the Americans used to come into our sector. We would meet them on the edge at Bavaria on the uh, mo- the a- A7, I think it was, we'd meet there on a dis- dis- an isolated little parking spot. They'd come in with the Americans, they'd park up, we would check their paperwork, we would then call to double-check that the details are correct and the IDs uh, f- fitted the individuals, and then we would escort them all the way from the edge of Bavaria all the way to Bunda. I mean, it, it's incredible that even with the formation of West Germany, there is still these sector boundaries existing from the occupation zones of world war Two. i mean you know they were there right the way through to 89 then i mean it must have really aggravated the west german police the fact that these guys were untouchable yeah i think it probably did and uh it, caught, it probably riled a lot of people but at the end of the day that was the agreement that was signed and that was the agreement they had to abide by you know and only in the last what was it sort of um, four, three or four months before the Russians left um, West, former West Germany, where they, did the German police have control of them? You know, there was a, a signal, a, a, a signal sent out in, in, a, in this kind of, in this, a letter form like this, came out and said, and I've got this letter here, saying that with effect, with a certain, a certain date, I've, I've, I, haven't read it, I haven't read it for such a long time, but, but with effect from a certain date, the, the, the British military police will no longer have jurisdiction on the, on the Russian forces that, that are presently in, in West Germany. 
and henceforth they will be using Russian number plates on their private vehicles and will become as treated as a member of the local public. So if they got involved in an incident, they would be dealt with by the German police, which is rather strange because we'd had the, the control for so long. Suddenly the German police were given this jurisdiction, but they weren't using the, the yellow and red plates. They were they were taken off their vehicles. So they suddenly got these black and white plates, uh, which is normal Russian registration plate. So they became a normal member of the public. Crazy. Yeah, incredible. Incredible. I mean, have you did you take any pictures of the um the Socksmiths vehicles? Was that part of your role or was that not? Um our job was to take as many pictures as we as we could with the with the MOD <laughs> MOD cameras that we had. But <laughs> there's always a but, isn't there? Um every member of the military police had their own cameras as well. So for every picture you took with the with the, with the Ministry of Defence camera, you, you kind of took with your own camera too. So I've got back here, I've got one, two, three. There we go. Three massive photo albums full of Russian <laughs> pictures. <laughs> and that, oh, by the wow. way, that, that's number 43. That's the soft top Isuzu Trooper. So I've got three yeah. photo albums going from... 1987 to 1988 and this one here and these other ones go on after that <laughs> yeah <laughs> which wow are, which, which are all there in in in, in superb condition <laughs> well that's uh i'd love to have a leaf through that yeah, you're more than welcome um i mean we we mentioned earlier about detaining socksmiths vehicles was that solely your role or could other military units do that in certain circumstances if um, if the if the Soviet vehicle was spotted in around any military installation, their guides that the instructions were to hem it in, front put a vehicle at the front and vehicle at the rear, not ram the vehicle but hem it in. There's a difference, and um, there is. I've got I've got pictures of two Dutch vehicles in Germany in, from West Germany that did exactly that. There were two Dutch. Uh, uh, vehicles uh, jammed in a, uh, or hemmed in a, uh, one of the Russian Soxman's vehicles and they put a cover across the top and called out the Dutch military police. Now, the Dutch military police obviously were in West Germany for a long time, uh, but they weren't, the Russians still wouldn't take any notice of them because they only recognized the British military police, even though the, the Dutch were in the British sector and the Russians were spying, clearly spying or trying to find out intelligence on the Dutch uh, a, a military equipment capability and the bases they had. So then they called us out. And then we we went out and then uh, re, re, took possession of their ID cards and then uh, that's when we called out the British the liaison, liaison officer and then the, he he physically escorts him out of the area once he's told them that they're in breach of the restrictions the permanent restriction zone and then they get uh, basically a letter goes up to their boss and saying that they were in a restricted zone they shouldn't be in there again and it's just like a slap on the wrist really uh, that happens. It happened regular enough, you know. I mean, you'd be you'd be sitting on a on a, in a service area, and you'd be in an area where uh, you think, well, there could be one here, there might not be one here. So you're sitting there, and suddenly some civilian would come come running up to you, tap on your window like a maniac, and you wind your window down, and he'd say, and he'd say in German, he'd say, "Socksmith, socksmith, socksmith, Russia, rusky, rusky," and you'd and you'd uh, shoot after this vehicle. It's crazy, and that's and that happened every so often. You'd be set in an area not knowing that they're there, and suddenly a, a local member of the local public or a member of, on the autobahn would see us and go, they'd know straight away British military police, 
they're yeah. they're responsible for the Russians. So we used to go and sure enough, as soon as we got onto the onto the motorway or the autobahn, and, and within within moment minutes, we'd pick up this this uh, Soviet car. Then we'd have to report in over the radio. We found number fifty two heading eastbound on the A two or wherever it was, and given the location, and then we'd be told to either carry on to follow it or drop off. And if we got told to drop off, the chances were that the intelligence were in the area; they were going to take over. And then the, the Russians would think, you know, okay, they, you know, we're okay here. They would carry on. Yeah, they'd think they'd outfoxed you. Yeah. Uh, were, were there occasions where perhaps the military unit was slightly a little bit too enthusiastic about the hemming in, uh, or not? No, not not in my not in my time. I'm sure there were pre- to pre- previous times uh, where I think people got carried away. I mean, the idea when when um, when the British were in the east, they, I know for a fact they used to get their vehicles crushed by tracked vehicles. Oh, yeah. You know, they used to drive over their engine blocks and things. You know, it, was, it became ridiculous, but we never did anything like that. I mean, I I actually was on patrol and we got called to um, a suspected um, infringement of a, of a farmer's piece of land. And as we drove into this farmer's piece of land, coming towards us was the Russian vehicle. We stopped nose to nose like that. Uh, <laughs> And we did, we, and then we did what we call detention, and we got them out mm. and got their ID cards, and they were caught. It was it was wonderful, yeah. just one of the moments where we came together like that. And there's there no way they were getting <laughs> out of it because it was a, it was a narrow track, and it turned out to be a, one of the majors and his driver um, doing a naughty, a naughty recce in a in a restricted area. So they got chastised over that one as well. That that was quite a nice. When things like that happen, it's quite it was quite a nice moment. You know, you suddenly caught them doing their naughty naughty stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I can imagine catching them red-handed. Um, were, were they these Soviets? Were they GRU or or what were they? Did you were you able to identify what sort of units they were? We knew we knew what they were. They were gunners, uh, artillery officers, um, just drivers. Um, there were, a, a prap was like a warrant officer. Then I mean, there were, there were a lot of officers, and uh, one or two, I think two or three. Yeah, when I then come to think of it, two or three of them. Occasionally, when they went out and they got lost deliberately, they would they uh, they were they were Spetsnaz, which is the special forces, and you know the difference because their ID card is red, and all the other troops have a grey browny coloured ID card. So when you got the red one, you knew straight away there's they're up to something a naughty because the, if the Spetsnaz are involved, they've gone in they've gone in for some intelligence because these are the people that are specialists in intelligence. And there was only two or three of those they had. But when you caught them, and ironically, the chap we caught in that, on that farmer's field or that farmer's track was Spetsnaz. So he was, but his driver wasn't. His driver was um, just, he was a driver and he was, he was a rifleman, like a rifleman. So they used to have private, private drivers. And sometimes the warrant officers would drive. The officers very rarely drove. They would always be driven. And there's a lot more officers than there was senior ranks and, and privates. So it was quite quite heavily on officers because obviously there was a political political role to be in West Germany and a huge honour if you were a, a a driver or a lance corporal uh, uh, to do that job. So uh, and sometimes they sometimes they used they used to pose for pictures with you, and and uh, and and then, and then of course when you're taking the pictures, they would hope that you would give them copies, but clearly it was not feasible or appropriate to give them copies of the photographs but you had to pass them on to the int but of course you kept copies yourself <laughs> that's what, we we all did we all did it was all part it was, it was a game you know and at the end of the day it was history in the making and none of us ever thought the berlin war would come down you know and there was the one occasion where i tried to follow that 
four by four off off road, and we went down into this gully. And my vehicle broke down because I think I'd knocked a solenoid out or something. And they did, they weren't aware. And just across from us, they stopped in the, in the same vehicle, 43. We stood there and it was lunchtime, right about quarter past 12. And uh, I got my little English sandwiches out. And the, the guy with me, uh, he got his sandwiches out. And we had a flask of tea because we, we were always prepared to, to, to for, for a long stint. So we always had at least two flasks of tea because we knew we'd be out for a long time. And I thought, well, we've broken down. I'm not going to tell them we've broken down. I'm just going to sit here and see what happens. And then this one of the officers got out of the vehicle, and, he, and from a distance I could see him, and he waved. So I said to the, the, the guy with me, I said, you stay here. I'll go across, and I'll have a chat with them. So, so that's when I, I went across. And this is when I got myself into deep water because um, they offered me a sandwich, which is fine. You know, it, was, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't an issue. Uh, it was a big sandwich. It's a big store stop uh, ham and ham and cheese and this massive roll. But while they were making the roll, I did my rounds and walked around their vehicle and I got the mileage. I got the condition I could see inside it. I got so much intelligence. I thought I was doing myself a favor. As it turned out, I actually got in trouble for, for over familiarization because I said it should never have gone over to them in the first place. But they got intelligence they would otherwise never have got. And I just got told not yeah. to be so familiar. But the sandwich was very nice. And, uh, and getting <laughs> and getting the mileage of the vehicle and seeing the mud inside it and the equipment they had shovels and stuff in there was very interesting and I'm sure really the intelligence were happy about that so they used to obviously they used to dig themselves in and stuff when they were out and about and they'd had they'd been doing that because you could tell by the mud inside the vehicle so they'd, they'd been to some some little uh, place hide a hideaway where they used to probably used to go on a regular basis but because we didn't have four by fours we weren't able to follow them across country and even that day and that day after we finished after i attempted to climb this sandwich and eventually uh, inwardly digested it the uh, my vehicle they drove off and, and my vehicle wouldn't start and no matter how much i tried it wouldn't start and then about half an hour after they left the solenoid reset itself and I managed to get started and get out of the woods. Uh, but by that time they were long gone. I'm sure they think to this day, why the hell didn't they follow us? Basically we couldn't. Yeah. Did nobody think of equipping you guys with four by fours? We did ask for Range Rovers because the RAF in Guttersloe, which is only up the road from us, they had a lovely fleet of Range Rovers. And the idea was that we would give them some of our cars and we would get some of their Range, Range Rovers, which would have been perfect, but it never came about. The idea was bashed around and considered but never actually taken up which is a shame really yeah who knows what you might have found <laughs> uh yeah unless the track was um a gravel track uh if it was any bit of if it was muddy we were stuck you know the vehicles were so low to the ground in 89 just before all the war, the berlin war came down because we got issued all these brand new opal senators wonderful vehicles uh three liter they had the opal badge but they were voxels and we got 12 of those and replaced the 12 ford granadas that we had all uh, white again but the difference was was the blue lights on the roof were a bar and they were identical to the german ones they were green and white with blue lights on the edges and we had military police front and rear and the fuel tank went from 160 liters to 145 uh, but the actual tank they fitted in the boot was a Formula One racing fuel tank. So it was designed not to explode into the vehicle, to, but to, to implode and push out the fuel out of the way from the vehicle should there be an impact. But with the other Granadas, we had 160 litres. It was just a steel tank, which was horrendous. But uh, the Senators were nice vehicles. They were very, very, very good. But unfortunately, they only got about eight months use before the Berlin Wall came down. 
and then they were all sent around to the different units where they drove and crushed the damn things, which was a shame because these each the whole I think it, I signed for because I was the the fleet manager or the MT sergeant for the for the for nineteen sport platoon. I think I signed for about one and one and a quarter million pounds worth of vehicle equip, vehicles and equipment when it came when they came through. <laughs> and then the and then next thing you know, the Berlin Wall was coming down. Incredible, incredible. You you must have some other memorable stories of your time. What's the Tecade story? Or- yeah, the Tecade. We we only we only had like half a dozen of these these telephone units, and these telephone units, what 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 they like? They're like um, a size of a shoebox, an average shoebox, and they had to be installed into the boot. But you could get into the boot through the back seat. So when we when we when we had multiple vehicles out on the ground, not everybody had these techades, which was a, basically it's a telephone. You had the receiver in the front, which you would pick up, and you and you would uh, press the buttons to get to dial the number. But you needed the box in the back to do the transmitting and the receiving. And we would be out following a probably following a, a, a Soviet car, anything between uh, eighty to ninety miles an hour, and then your your replacement would come to take over from you, and they they didn't have the techades, so. If I was, whoever was driving, the other person would climb over the front seat into the back, open up the, the seat, take, disconnect this techade unit, which meant we had no, no, no communications. And then the other guy from the other vehicle would pull alongside. So we were side by side with the back windows open and we, we would pass the techade from one vehicle to the other. You had to strategically place your vehicle and the drivers had to be good at this because you were almost on a door mirror to door mirror when you were close doing this speed and still following the Russians. So then the other guy would then reach, reach out and pull this thing back into their vehicle and then plug it in and then we would just peel off and they would carry on the pursuit uh that happened a few and times so you're doing this at like 90 miles an hour mm. yeah yeah we came we wow. came quite we, we became quite experts at it <laughs> yeah i'd imagine you <laughs> i'd imagine you would it sounds like something they should have added in the royal tournament <laughs> yeah that was it was an experience i only i only ever did it i think i did it twice and it was uh yeah it was a bit hairy uh at times uh yeah. But it, it it works, and we, it did the job. And uh, you know, and when you got when you bear in mind you've got a hundred and sixty liter tank, you can go for quite a distance on that. So, uh, but the, I mean, the, the Soviets never knew we had extended fuel tanks, but I'm sure they had an idea because we just were always with them when they when we needed to be with them, we were there. You know, so uh, and we used to have sheets and sheets and sheets books of fuel coupons, and you'd go to a petrol station anywhere in Germany if it was a Shell or a BP or an SO, you'd go in and you'd You'd, you'd fill up one tank and then you'd pull it out and fill up the second tank because the other tank used to automatically feed into the second tank and you'd put in maybe 140 litres and a guy would come out and he'd look under the car and he'd say, where's the camera? Where's what? what it, where's it all going? And you go, it, it all fits. Trust me, it fits. And they used to say, they look around, you know, is this a wind up? Is there a camera? Are we, are we, is it we on candid camera or something? And they say, no, <laughs> is, it, we, we've put in 100, we've put in 130, 132 liters, but here's 140. And, you know, and they, they thought, oh, okay, thank you. You know, and then they did away. <laughs> and then after, after that in the nineties, they did away with the fuel coupons and you got like a, a swipe in debit card type thing now. But uh, yeah, we used to have massive books. We used to carry something like a thousand liters of fuel. Uh, cards in our vehicle in our glove box so we could just we just tank up randomly it must have cost the mod an absolute fortune wow wow but it was it was good good times and are there are there any other detention stories that you've got that we've not that we've not covered 
We had uh, we had so many actually, but I think one of the funniest ones was just as the Cold War was declared to be finished, we were following one of the Russian vehicles. In fact, it was forty three again, funnily enough, and they left and drove left the autobahn and drove into a into a military installation area, and and they just. And we just stood, we followed them off on the road, and the, and the guy was me, a guy called Mike Mick, Mick Carr. He said they've just driven off a road into a into a military installation. I said, "Yeah, they have, haven't they?" And it kind of took us a few seconds to realise that they'd done it, and then we realised it was a complete and utter map reading error on their on their behalf. And we stopped and we detained them and had to go through all the paraphernalia, even though we knew it was a map reading error. Uh, so things that things like that happened as well. You know, they even had to. Not often, but they had a couple of crashes on near Hanover, near Garbson, where they uh, this, on the snow they had a couple of uh, damaged damage vehicles there. Was we were called out to, and because we used to have winter tires in Germany, it was law to have winter tires, so we'd have to get our tires on to go out and to deal with it and and pick up the pieces because they wouldn't move their vehicles until we got there. So quite often you'd go to an incident and it could have been cleared, but they wouldn't clear it because the Russians wouldn't allow it. So there's so many little incidents like that all over the place. Where were you when you heard that the Berlin Wall had opened? I was actually at in in the uh, in the ops room in um, in nineteen Spumatoon, and because uh, because I was I was there. There was a guy, the, the guy um, Malcolm I talked about who took me on the white white mask course. He uh, we were talk. I only talked to him a, uh, a few days before that, and I said, you know. Probably the Berlin Wall's going to come down. He said, "No, it's never going to come down. It can't. You know, this Cold War is going to go on forever. It just won't happen." And then it was like literally overnight, uh, the Berlin Wall's come down, and, and it was all over the news, and uh, and we were all on standby. And then suddenly we were we were no longer on standby because the Berlin Wall came down, came down, uh, and our whole job description changed completely, changed overnight. You know, instead of following them. We were now um, looking after them in secu- more, more in the secu- security role uh, because they, they, you know, they were still going out and do their and do their patrols, but it wasn't like it was because uh, you know they were going to they were going back. So they and the intelligence they were going to get now wasn't as, as as worthy as it would have been when uh, things were, when the tension was different. So it was a really interesting time for everybody, and none of us knew what was going on. And then I see all these all these um, messages came out. Like like this one. This is one of the original. This is the original um, uh, transcript from from the old Comsen saying, "The second of October, nineteen ninety, in accordance with the Robinson and Mellie Agreement Act of nineteen forty six, are to be withdrawn from Soxmiss by the by uh, the, by October nineteen ninety. Uh, then mustered account on United individuals items, Soxmiss number plates, etc. Held by any liaison mission." And nineties book two must be accounted for. So that's the letter that came out, which I've got. That's it. That's the original <laughs> saying that everything is to be accounted for, yeah. and they're no, no longer uh, on a mission. The mission is cancelled, but they were still going out and doing patrols. Yeah, still yeah. gaining intelligence. Wow. And we were still doing that, and we went down from twelve twelve potential patrol, potential patrol vehicles. We went down to two overnight. When you heard that news, you must have thought, "Flipping it, this is my job." disappearing oh we we all did we all did you know we all thought wow this is uh this is this is this is history in the making <laughs> because the berlin wall was never meant to come down it was it was meant to be um it, they were meant to ease the restrictions of the people coming from the east to the west and vice versa but unfortunately the people got it in their mind that there were the barriers were coming down so what they did do they all gathered at the, at the barriers and forced the barriers down and then the berlin wall was breached and that was that was no going back 
but we we kept going. We we didn't actually finish until the latter part of the 90s, early 91, when the, when it finally the, the 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 compound closed down. But by that time, we'd had uh, just little issues. You know, we, our job was curtailed suddenly overnight. The the, the wall was down. Uh, we still controlled the Russians. We still were the police force. And they were still going out and we were still putting patrols out, but as a token gesture, because there was nothing uh, more to be to be said because all, all this information came out saying that they were no longer uh, on, to be covered as Soxmas patrols. So were you able to be friendlier with them at that point? Or, no, it stayed or the same. Or was it still, still the same? It was still by the book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was one of the few that would actually talk to them because they would speak German. But as I said to you, they would not speak English. They very rarely, if I've never heard them ever speak English. Before the Berlin Wall came down, we would, uh, they would quite quite often have functions at uh, Bunda in in their compound, and our job then became a security guard. So we would uh, patrol their compound to make sure they weren't hassled by any local thugs and things. And they used to come out, and through the fence, they would pass us sandwiches and lots and lots and lots of vodka. And we would put the, they would give us these little little goblets of vodka like this. And we would open our flask and pour it into the flask. So when you left in the in the end of an evening, you probably have two flasks full because the Russians love love their vodka, and uh, and and of course you then take that vodka home and it was it was good stuff. But although they used to buy it from the Nafi, they never said that. Just before the Berlin Wall was announced, we were at Belsen, and it was a a proper uh, official memorial day, and Major was then Lieutenant Colonel. Nipko came out of the um, memorial memorial service, and the British liaison officer was there. And I've got I've got all these pictures. And Major Nipko, who had just been promoted to lieutenant colonel, took his hat off. And this is this hat that he threw, and I caught it. And inside and inside this hat, it says Major Nipko, 1988. That's that's his little wow. head in, inside this hat. And I, and I I kept that, and I was I I thought he expected me to throw my berry back, and I I couldn't because I would have been yeah. properly dressed. So I kept my berry, yeah. but I also kept I also kept this. So this is this was the this is really was at the end. That is an incredible piece. That that definitely should be in the army museum. That yeah yeah, and then incredible. As, then we got invited down to um, Bunda. Because uh, the, obviously the Russians had packed up, they were ready to go for their last farewell, and only three of us could go. There was my, myself, a guy called Des Webster, who was a corporal, and Bernie Virgin, uh, MBE. He um, he was the warrant officer in charge of the platoon. Now Bernie said uh, he didn't he, he was he didn't want to drink much. I said, well, either way, you have a drink because you're you're the senior here. You can have a drink. I'll I'll drive your vehicle, and Des can really socialise with the uh, the Russians. So it was the best decision I ever made because I was drinking orange juice. Bernie was drinking, had a little bit of vodka with, with some orange juice. And Des was drinking a tumbler like this, full of vodka, pure vodka. He had three, 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 three glasses of this stuff and he was completely paralytic. And the Russians, four Russians picked him up and took him up and put, laid him on the bed for about two hours while we carried on with the festivities downstairs. <laughs> All the rest of the, all the rest of the platoon by this time had all dissolved. It all it all gone. There was just the three of us left, and then um, we had the, we had bits of food and things. It was, it was the conversation was going well, and then it was, of course it was time to go. Uh, the British liaison officer was there. There was quite a few people there, and 
then we had to get Dez. So the Russians picked up Dez, they carried him down and put them in the back of the, uh, the of Bernie's uh, Volvo, which was happened to be brand new. He only picked it up the day before. And because uh, Dez was rather rather worse for wear, he, oh, um, no. he was a bit messy in the back of the car. So uh, <laughs> it, didn't go, it didn't go down well. And then we had to get um, uh, Dez on to, to uh, his wife, who was known to be quite uh, um, feisty, to say the least. And we... <laughs> I said to I said to Bernie, I said, right, Bernie, this is what we have to do. We take him up onto the fourth floor of this block where he lives. We put him at the front door to his home, and we ring the doorbell and we leave quickly because if you if you if you otherwise you're going to get dragged into the argument of him being in the state he's in. So I said, whatever you do, you keep the lift open, and I'll prop him up and I'll ring the doorbell. So we got up to the floor and we propped him against the door. The Bernie kept the lift door open. And I pressed the doorbell, and as he started sliding down the door to his apartment, I heard I heard his wife shouting, "Is that you, Des? What time do you call this?" And really going going on one. And I'd run to the lift, and, and the, as the lift door shut, I heard their door open, and, and what time do you go? look at the state of you and everything else? And and uh, of course, we got we got away, and everything was fine. And the next day, he came in, and he looked really rough. And uh, I said, "You look really rough. You you are you okay?" He said, "Yeah." He said. Um, when it, where I fell, when she opened the door and I fell in, that's where she left me all night. She just threw a blanket over me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he was in the doghouse for a while. But sadly, yeah. um, that, that the memories of that day are only with me now because uh, Bernie Virgin died. Bless him. A really nice guy. He died a couple of years ago. And uh, Des also died a few years ago. So, uh, so all the only members of the platoon that went... I'm the only one surviving, which is really, really sad because Des was younger than me. Uh, he got cancer and Bernie went into an op- into hospital for an operation and didn't come out. So they're both, uh, they're mm. both passed, which is uh, sad. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that is, but I guess we've immortalized their story now. Des was a fantastic driver, unbelievable driver, really super guy. And Bernie was just an awesome gentleman, a real gentleman. And he deserved the MBE. I never knew what he got the MBE for, actually, but I, but I do know he, he got the MBE. And I believe it was to do with work he did with the Russians and stuff within the, in the, within the platoon. But really, really two right. awesome, awesome people, which is, which is nice. Proud to have served with them guys. Uh, but, you know, life goes on. Yeah. And, uh, and then the next thing you know, you know, the, uh, the Russians are, go- are going back and they no longer have the number plates because I've got them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh and then i i end up with the last the last duty is to escort them down to rhindarlan which is the, the british headquarters there to receive their marching orders and then uh they they were they, they were in there for like i think about an hour or less with coffees and chats with the british liaison officer and everything else i've got all the i've got all the um the newspaper clippings here from that day as well. I've got those. And then they came out and I, and I waited for them. Colonel Trunov was the, was the chief officer, the Colonel. They were in his, in his Opal Senator, a bit dark blue thing. It was much older than ours. And we escorted him out of the, uh, the base of Rhind Island. We got onto, I think it was the 57 and we got to the first service area. And they, and by this time I said they had the Russian black and white number plates on their vehicles and the um the driver was a, was a was a private and the the colonel was in the back he got and he got out and he said he said he spoke russian to his to his driver and his driver said to us the the colonel wishes you all the very best for the future and hopes you don't find yourselves unemployed for too long and i and i said i wish i wish the same to him 
uh, in German. It's all in German. So we wish him all the very best. And we saluted each other. And that was the end of the Cold War. And then they drove off. That was them on the way back to, uh, to the east. And we have further information such as videos and links in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, this show wouldn't exist without our generous Patreons, so I want to thank one and all of them for their support. You can very easily become a Patreon by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information